0: they're doing that, let me encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. We're working through the letter of 1 John in our New Testament this morning and so we invite you to find uh, your place there. David Allen, the preaching professor at Southwestern, says that there are three areas of the Christian life they must always be mindful of, three areas in which they must be living in. He poses them this way. He says, what we are, we must understand what we are, we must understand what we shall be, and we must understand what we should be. And so we kind of phrase them this way. What are we? What shall we be? What should we we be. Now what he means by that is simply this, as a Christian, one who's come to the Lord Jesus Christ, one who's been saved by Christ, placed their faith in Christ, we are, to answer question number one, children of God. We are considered His children. We've been adopted into His family. He will also tell us that when we understand we are children of God, then what we will be one day is transformed like Him, seeing Him face to face. That answers question number two. The third area of a Christian that we should be thinking about as we're living is this. If I'm a child of God and one day I will see God face to face, what should I be doing now? How should I be living? And the answer to question number three is we should be purifying ourselves in righteousness. Now, the reason why I pose those three for you is because in John chapter one, starting in verse 28, that's exactly what John will deal with. John will say, one day you're going to see Jesus and you now who are born of God, born again, made children of God should live in a manner that's worthy of seeing Jesus one day. And so ultimately how we view the future will affect how we live now, what we will do Join me in your copy of God's Word, 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage this morning, uh, starting in verse uh, 28, and I'll read through chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now, Lord, as we walk through this text together, that you would make it clear to us what John was writing, and what your living word, this true word, this word for us today, Lord, what it means in our lives and how we are to live. Father, help us as we understand what it means to be a true Christian, a true follower of Christ. Father, I pray for the one who's here this morning that might be seeking, they might be wondering about their salvation they might be wondering about eternity they might be wondering about death itself lord i pray this morning that through your word and through the work of your spirit they would hear the truth to all of those questions lord i pray for the one who's here this morning that's a believer a christian a christ follower but they find themselves weary of the days they find themselves beat down and worn thin lord i pray they'd be encouraged today That soon and very soon you will appear and we will see you and you will make all things new. Father, I pray for clarity as we walk through your word together. Spirit, move among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of background, let me remind you that John is one of the last living, if not the last living, apostle Now the apostles were those group of men found in the New Testament who had the privilege and the honor to see the resurrected Savior Jesus and to record for us the testimony of the gospel. We find this in the New Testament. They were tasked with writing down Jesus' words in the New Testament. And so John has grown old in life. He's one of the only apostles not to die of persecution. He's made it to a ripe old age. And he writes to the church, probably the church in Ephesus. He's writing to them to encourage them. But mainly the reason why he's writing is because because there had been a group of people that had come into the church and began to teach something other than the true gospel. They had began to teach things like sin was not a big deal. It didn't matter to God or we don't really even sin anymore anyway because we're believers and we shouldn't worry about sin. They began to teach things like Jesus was not really God, but a really uh, important human that God touched with a special way. They, They began to teach things that was heretical, that's opposite of the true gospel. And John, being an eyewitness, being an apostle, he writes a letter and he even tells them in chapter one, he says, I've told you from the beginning. I was there. I saw him. Let me remind you of the truth. And so he will do this. Now in our passage today, here's why he writes about these things of sin and being born of God and having the seed of God or or being prepared for the return of God. Here's why. And listen, now don't miss this. Here's what John is doing. John is writing to a church that's been ravished by false teachers. And so their faith is rattled. There are some new believers in the church. Certainly, there are some weak believers in the church. As we know, the church is made up of all who have come to Christ, some further along in their walk. And because the false teachers have come in, doubt has been raised in the minds of the believers. Am I really saved? Am I really with Christ? Do I have the real gospel? Is it really true? I would put before you that probably all of us at some time in our walk with Jesus have asked that question. Am I really saved? Is it really true? Do, do I really know what I need to know to be prepared to see God when I die? We, we wrestle with those questions. And so what John does in our passage this morning is he writes to assure the believer you can know there's evidence to see if you're really a child of God. There is evidence marks, if you will, of a true Christian. That's the title of the sermon this morning, the marks of a true Christian. What should a real Christian see in their life that would give confidence and evidence that they really are walking with God. And so simply put this way, if you want to be assured of your salvation, then be in agreement with what John is about to teach us. If you want to worry of your salvation, then listen to what John is about to teach us and make sure that you know the truth that he will proclaim. He will give us confidence. There are three marks I believe we can find in this passage of a true Christian. Mark number one, a true Christian lives for the coming of Christ, lives for the coming of of Christ and by lives here, I mean anticipates, walks their life knowing Jesus is around the corner. We touched on this a little bit last week at the end of our sermon, but here we pick up the title again. In verse 28, if you'll look in your Bible, it is literally a hinge verse, it is what the door is hanging on. All of the verses leading up to verse 28 tell us that there are those who preach something other than Jesus. In fact, he would tell us in verses 18 through 27, they should be called Antichrist because they're preaching something other than Christ. And then he says, but those who really know Jesus, verse 28, should not be afraid of his coming because we know the truth. And so he tells us about the beauty of Christ's coming. But he uses verse 28 to remind us that we are to have right doctrine so we'll see God. But then looking forward in verse 29 through the beginning of chapter 3, he uses verse 28 to say, and this should be our motivator for living. Notice what I mean. Look with me in your Bible at verse 28, and we'll read through verse 3. And now, little children, there's that term of affection that John gives the church. And now, little children, abide in him. That means have a relationship with Jesus. Walk with him. Stay with him so that when He appears, he may, you may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. John alludes to the fact Jesus will appear, and those who are with Him should not be afraid of this. Verse 29, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now look with me at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Let's pick it up there. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Verse 3. And everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I want you to notice in verse 28 that all of this is anchored on this word, appears. Now, let this just sit in this for a moment because it's, it's too good for the church not to celebrate. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day where what has been invisible to us will become visible. There is coming a day where the Christ we've only known through His Word and through the work of His Spirit and the testimony of His apostles, the Christ that we've seen in the moving, that Christ will split the sky and the trumpet will sound and that Christ in full physical form will stand before us. And we will see Him. We will see all that we've studied and read about, all of our affection and heart, all the times our souls have been stirred in singing to his goodness and listening to his word and praying for his intervention, all of the work that we've done for his name, all of the stumbling we've fallen, but he's picked this back up, all of that will be made new and fresh and perfect when he shows up. And John says, when he appears, now listen, don't miss this. John says, when he appears, not if he appears, not I hope he appears. We may not know the day he will appear, but we can be confident, son, he will appear. He is coming. And John says, you will see Jesus. And so what's so good about that? What's so good about it is is that John flips that and says, now that you know you're going to see Him, now that the guest is coming, now that you know the King and all of His splendor and glory will show up, now that you know you, you will invite Him to be near you and He will invite you to be near Him, now that you know that, you probably ought to live a little different. You probably ought to change the way you behave. We alluded to this a little bit last week, but it's always interesting that when someone is coming to our house, we act different than normal. When someone is coming to our house, we wash the clothes and fold them and put them up. We don't just live out of the hampers, right? When someone's coming to our house. When someone's coming to our house, we wash the coffee pot instead of just make fresh coffee every morning because who washes a coffee pot? But when guests are coming, you wash it, right? You prepare for Just by the way, if you come to my house, I'll make sure to wash the pot, I promise. The idea is, is that you're preparing for his return. Wendy tells a story of growing up where her parents would bribe her to eat by saying Santa Claus is coming. It got so sad at one point she had to hold her empty dish up to the window so Santa could see that she ate her vegetables. Moms and dads, don't do that. That's terrible. (laughs) They were preparing for the coming. So John uses this verse to remind us that hey, 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 he's coming. He's going to come, he's going to appear and you don't know when and you don't know well, and you, excuse me, you don't know when and you don't know where and you don't know what you'll be doing. So what does John do? He puts inside of us this deep motivation to say, if you know he's coming, live like it. Live like it might be today. Live like it might be tomorrow. Live like he is coming. Make certain you are ready for his appearing. Now notice with me in verse two and three he picks this back up. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when that He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now, we don't know a lot about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. We have some very clear scripture on it. We understand the resurrection of the dead. We understand that we'll be like him. We've read Revelation where we see that, that all the things that we spend all of our money on to decorate our, our fingers and our ears will be plaster and pavement in heaven, right? Golden streets and, and gems on the wall, that, that heaven's going to be this miraculous thing. And and Revelation chapter 20 and 21, it tells us that the gates never close. That means there's no need for security. There The sun never sets. The light's always there because Jesus... We we know some stuff about the kingdom. We have some inkling of what it will be. But there's a lot of mystery. But I want you to show you in this one verse what we know for sure. Look with me again at this one verse, verse 2. Let me tell you exactly what it's going to be like when he appears, that we know for sure. Here it is, listen now. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we know we will that he has not yet appeared. But when he appears. So stop there. Here's the first thing you can know about the glory of heaven. Jesus will be there. Now listen now, let's don't miss this. We talk a lot of heaven. We talk a lot about heaven. We talk a lot about what it will be like. We want to see loved ones. We want to eat and never grow full. I'm kind of fond of that part. We're going to enjoy heaven. I'm kind of wondering if my golf game will be any better in heaven. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping that it will, right? There's some things we speculate about. We like to say that grandma's up there now in God's kitchen or or daddy's planting a garden up there now. We like to try to earthify heaven. That's not a word, by the way. Here's what I know. I know in John 14, this is what Jesus says. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I am coming again so that you may be where I am also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go so that you may be where I am. Let me tell you why heaven is so special. It's not because your grandma's there, though I hope to see mine again. It's not because there'll be a feast that will never grow full, though that's going to be good and I'm for it. It's not because there won't just be a lack of backaches and sorrow and tears. Let me tell you why heaven will be wonderful, because Jesus will be there the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince, the Savior, the one who shed his blood for me, the radiance of God himself in the flesh will be there. So here's what I know about this wonderful heaven that's coming. Jesus will be there. But notice the second thing in verse 2. He tells us about this idea of Jesus appearing. He says, we will see him. But notice verse 2 again. He says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, here it is, We shall be like him. You know what that means? That means no more death and no more sorrow. That means no more sickness and no more tears. That means no more masks and social distancing. That means no more uh, pain and sorrow, depression, anxiety, suffering, no more surgeries, no more drunks who wreck cars, no more babies who are kidnapped, no more terrorists who blow things up, no more sin in my own life, no more sickness in my own life, no more temptation that I will fall to and trip over. We will be like Him, tearless, deathless, forever in His presence. Brothers and sisters, when He appears, we will be like Him. Can you imagine the day when you wake up and your back doesn't hurt? Can you imagine the day when you wake up and every relationship is perfect? Perfect. Every relationship. Can you imagine the day where Kleenex goes out of business because nobody's crying? What a wonderful thought for us. And so what does John do? Look, look with me at verse 3 now. Let me show you what he does. He builds up heaven. He reminds us of this glory of heaven. He is contrasting it. Verse 2, notice what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and he has not appeared yet, but when he does, we will be like him. I, I love the way John writes this, because he's contrasting what we know with what we don't know. Here's what he says. We know that we're his children now and being the children of God now is wonderful. It's glorious. God is with us. He strengthens us. He forgives us. He binds us into a family. What we know is being a children of God now. And so what does John say? Because I know enough now to know being a child of God is good that when I see him face to face, it's going to be wonderful. He's giving us a contrast here. Of what little inkling I have of what the kingdom will be like is enough to tell me that whatever it will be when he shows up is going to be spectacular he's encouraging us. But notice verse 3. Here's where he pivots. He says, because of this, because of this, look at verse 3, and everyone who hopes in his return, who knows he's coming, purifies himself as he is pure. Now listen to what John does. John says, just as the guest is coming and you begin to clean your house and wash your coffee pot, remember Jesus is coming. Get things in order. Live ready to know. what washers, It's the image of the Old Testament priest when he says wash, purify, anoint. It's the priest who was going in to worship and lead worship in the temple and he had to wash himself ceremonially. He had to get himself right before God so that he could go and worship God. That's the imagery that John is pulling from. He's pulling from that Old Testament imagery of the king is around the corner, live a life ready to see him. Live a life ready to stare at him. In fact, we should live a life ready to see him in such a way that verse 28, go back up there, it says you shouldn't be ashamed or scared or cower in his coming. That when he appears, you've lived your life in such a way that you're ready to see him because you've been living a life that's looking to the future. This is going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a wonderful day. I I can't imagine what it's going to be like. The hymn writer Charles Wesley, the Methodist hymn writer, writes it this way. He says, and if our fellowship below in Jesus be so sweet, what heights of rapture shall we know when around his throne we meet? As good as it is here on earth, can you imagine how good it's going to be there? Can you imagine? Paul would say in Corinthians chapter 2, he would say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We can't even imagine what's up there. We have a little bit of an inkling. We have a little understanding. But when we get there, it's going to be glorious. And so here's what John does. He says, because it's going to be glorious, prepare today. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you a question? It's really a two-fold question. The first one is very clear. When Jesus appears, will you be invited in? Are you a child of the King? Are you part of His family? Are you going to be welcomed? Will you be transformed like Him? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you cried out for salvation? We're going to look further at that in just a moment. But understand this. John is writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have chose to follow Christ, place their faith in Christ, and see no other way to God but through Christ. And so he writes to them and says, little children, believers, followers of God, if you know Christ, you will see him one day. And then he gives us that motivation. If you know Christ, you will see him one day. So purify yourselves. Looking to the future should be the mark of a Christian. Do you wake up each day thinking this might be the day? This might be the one? God could be around the corner. The trumpet could sound before I finish breakfast, before I make it to lunch, before I get to supper, before I lay my head. Maybe before I wake the next morning, this could be the day that I see God face to face, whether his return or I draw my last breath. God is coming. He will appear. And so John tells us the mark of a true Christian is one who lives, purifying himself, knowing he will stand before God. Let me give you a second mark of a true Christian I see in this passage, and that's simply this. A true Christian loves being a child of God. I know that seems like a simple way of stating it, that he loves being a child of God, but John will go out of his way to remind us all through this passage that we've been adopted, brought in, saved, we're part of the family of God, and we won't shrink back from that. We won't be ashamed of that. We'll be proud to walk in the way of our Father. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born, there it is, born of him. Now look down at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we have, he has not appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who puts their hope in him purifies himself. Notice at the beginning of that, he says, we are God's children now. Now look over at verse 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident you are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is painting for us two families. He said there are those who are in the family of the devil and those that are in the family of God. And the children of God, you can spot them. You can see them. And the children of devil, you can spot them. You can see them. He's giving us measurable evidence of who's with the Lord and who's not. He's giving us clear understanding for a surety of our salvation. Now let us for just a moment make clear something about the gospel. Let us make clear what John is doing. John is simply saying that if you claim to be a child of God, you are adopted into the family of God, you will display some of the DNA of God. You will display some of the DNA of your Father, now, many of you can't see this, and those of you watching online certainly can't, but if you got close enough, you would be able to tell that I have probably the most beautiful blue eyes in the world. They are spectacular. They are phenomenal. They are the best. You, I'm really building this up, aren't I? They are the best you've ever seen. The only person that probably has better blue eyes than me is Addie. She got them from me, and she's prettier than me, so that makes it happen. Do you know why I have blue eyes? My daddy's got blue eyes. That's why I got blue eyes. I I have his DNA. You know why sometimes I'm a smart aleck? My mom is a smart aleck. I got her DNA. You see, we resemble the DNA of our parents. That's exactly what John is saying. John says the mark of a true Christian is that they will be a child of the king, they will be a child of God, and you'll know it. They'll behave like their father. You'll see evidence that they've been raised in the family. We kind of use the slang term this way. You'll act like you got some home training, right? You'll act like you were raised in a family, that you have some DNA. We might say it in the negative. Your mama taught you better than that. Your daddy raised you better than that. That's what we mean. The DNA has been passed down. Notice what John does here. He says, those who are true Christians will bear the marks of a child of God. Look at the words that he uses. He says, first, you'll be born of God. Now, this is a special term that John would use. John, I'm sure, is hearkening back to the days in which he wrote the gospel of John. He's hearkening back probably to the conversation that he got to eavesdrop in on between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If you were to pick up your Bible and read John chapter 3, here's what you'll find. You'll find that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, that he's been healing the sick, that he's been doing miraculous things because he's God in the flesh, and he's proclaiming that if you want to come to salvation, you must come through him. And Nicodemus, being a teacher of the law, a rabbi, a Jew, not a Christian, not a follower of Christ, comes in the middle of the night curious about this Jesus. And he forms a question, you can read it in John chapter 3, and the question I'll paraphrase is the same question that every person asks. How can I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm saved? Or that I'll see God? Or that I'll get to heaven when I die? How can I know this? What Jesus tells him in John chapter 3 is simply these words. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said this. Here it is. You must be born again. Now, I understand. In Christian language, that can be somewhat confusing. So I want to try to make it as simple as possible for you. All of us in this room who are breathing have a physical birthday. You were born on a certain day of the calendar at a certain time of a certain year. You were born that way. Some of you were born in the last 10 years. Some of you were born in the last 50 years. Some of you were born. We won't go any further. You have birthdays. You have physical birthdays. You were born. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, just like you were born physically, there must be a day, a moment, a time where you are born spiritually. Now, what does he mean by this, being born spiritually? Well, if you were to read a little further in John chapter 3, you'll find probably the most famous verse in the Bible. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him, that means believes in Jesus, will have everlasting life. They won't perish. That's being born again. Being born again is the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who deeps down inside of us, plunging deep into our sin and transforms us from the inside out. Being born again, you can read in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, I'll replace your heart of stone with a heart that beats for Him. Being born again means, if you look over in your Bible, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3, having the very seed of God implanted in the soil of our soul. It is God transforming us from the inside out. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ taking life light in our soul it is by faith we cry out lord i need saving there's nothing i can do and the spirit of god works a miracle inside of us and changes our dna and calls us his children and adopts us unto his own and we are now transformed and here's what's so beautiful about being born again god did it in order to bring us into his family now brothers and sisters i I, I don't know if you remember the game Red Rover, but when you play the game Red Rover, you hold hands on the playground and you call someone over and they try to break the arms. If they break through the arms, they get to claim teammates and bring them back to their team and you go back and forth until you've utterly crushed the team. It's not a very fun game for those of us growing up that might have had noodle arms and weren't very strong or sturdy, right? It's a pretty fun game for those of you that are well balanced and stout. We'll put it that way, right? That's how the game works. But whenever you play Red Rover, you always want to team up with the strongest or the biggest. You're picking teams based on the value of winning the game. Now, i just got to be honest with you. God in heaven shouldn't have chosen none of us. He shouldn't have picked any of us for his team. He shouldn't have put any of us on His roster. Why? Because we are wretched sinners who rebel against Him. We go our own way. We choose our own paths. We do everything opposite of what He's called us to do. He should have chose none of us. And yet the Bible says, By the work of the Spirit, He planted His seed inside of us and transformed us and caused us to be born again and adopted us into His family. Notice what John says about this. He says, Oh, what love! What love that he would do this. See chapter 3, verse 1. I encourage you to underline this verse and memorize it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That God would call you His child should give you motivation to live for Him. In one of his books, C.S. Lewis writes a book called Screwtape Letters. And in the book, he is writing about the correspondence between two demons. One demon is training the other. Uh, One of the demons is teaching the other one uh, how to uh, go about getting the men and women that God's created away from following God. He's he's giving them ways in which to tempt us away from God. And we get to peer into this idea. And so Screwtape, the master demon, is training Wormwood, the lesser demon, on how to tempt humans. And one of the things that Screwtape says to Wormwood is that it's hard to get humans away from God, and here's the reason that he gives. He writes these words in, in Screwtape letters. The enemy, God, that's from a demon perspective, has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into his sons. Brothers and sisters, God, by the work of Christ, has made us his sons and daughters we did not deserve it we did not merit it we certainly could not pay for it but out of his love oh what love is this love so divine so amazing that he would save us and redeem us and call us his children you want to know why you should behave like a child of God because he's made you a child of God he's brought you in John would put it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He would say, but to all who did receive him and believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God made you his child. And he calls us to act like it. He calls us to live like it. He gives us this call that we are to see to work and serve and go after him. So notice now, because you're a child of God, look at verse 9 and 10 again. Because you're a child of God, he says at verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now verse 10, he gives us kind of the negative, but this is the evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. He tells us there's certifiable evidence to see who's in the family and who's not. Those that are in the family are not practicing sin. Now, he's not advocating for perfection. He's simply advocating for direction. Those who are in the child of the king will walk towards the king. And those who are not a part of the child of the king, those who have not been adopted into the kingdom, will walk in opposition of the king. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction. He says, you can see evidence in your life. Have you had a moment where you've been born again, where you were saved, where God changed your heart, where the spirit worked inside of you? And from that moment, can you look back to today and see evidence where you've walked away from the things of the devil and towards the things of God, your new father? Can you track it? Can you see it? Is there evidence in your life that you're actually a believer that you're true Christian that you're doing what's happened on the inside is working its way out on the outside? Is there a call here? Now again, we must be clear. We understand that being born of God is the work of God. You do not work yourself into salvation, but you work yourself past salvation. Once salvation has taken place in your life, you begin to work now, working towards the Father who has saved you, working towards that sanctification, working towards that day in which he returns. But you will not walk, or notice the word that he uses there in verse 9 and 10, you will not practice sin. Now we understand the word practice, brothers and sisters. Practice means to swing that baseball bat over and over and over and over. Practice means to shoot that scope and that gun over and over and over and over. Practice is to work on grandma's cornbread over and over and over till you get it right. That's practice. So what is he saying? The Christian will not keep going back to sin over and over and over and over and over. And if he continues to go back to sin over and over and over and over and over, he may not actually be a child of the God. John is giving us clear, sobering, Evidence. Plummer writes it this way. He says, Though the believer sometimes sins, yet not sin, but opposition to sin is the ruling principle of his life. The believer should not be characterized as one who sins, but one who walks away from sin on a regular daily practice. This is the call of being a true Christian. So he says, here's the marks. The marks of a true Christian. They live for the future. The mark of a true, true Christian. They live now as a child of God. And, and notice the word that he uses in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now. It's a legal term. It's happened. It's not just a title. You are God's child Now. We are called to live like it. Let me give you a third and final one as we finish this text, and that's simply this. The mark of a true Christian not only lives for the future, not only loves being a child of God, but the mark of a true Christian will be seen in the way they loathe the wickedness of sin. You notice I use the word loathe there to make all three of my L's rhyme in my points. The word loathe means to hate. They despise sin. A mark of a true Christian will view sin the way God views sin. Look with me as we close in verse 4 through 8. Let's see how we end this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He that appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and yes, he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the work of the devil. John says, you want to know if you're a true believer, you'll view sin the way God views sin. You'll understand sin the way Jesus understands sins, the way heaven views sins. And he gives us a couple of things here about practicing sin. He says, if you're practicing sin, here's what you're doing. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, if you're practicing sin, you are living lawlessly. Practicing sin is lawlessness. It is to go against the things of God. Notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, sin is lawlessness. Now, he's not thinking in his mind of a specific commandment that you broke. He's not thinking in his mind of a specific mosaic rule from the Old Testament and thinking that the law applies here and you broke it. What he's simply saying is, is that anything that's opposite the character and the calling and the convictions of God's word is breaking the law. And so ultimately what he's pointing at is simply this. Here's what sin is. Listen to me now, don't miss this. Sin is rebelling against the lawgiver. It is to rebel against God. So notice the argument that he makes. How can you claim to know God and be his child if you live in opposition of his instruction? How can you claim to walk with God and be transformed with God if your life's pattern is to do the things that are opposite of what God has said? How can the evidence of your life be anything other than you being a son or daughter of the devil if you claim to be with God but live a different way? He says this is lawlessness. It's sin. It's wrong. And it gives evidence to the fact that you don't really notice what he says in verse 5. You don't really know him. Verse 6, excuse me. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or know him. Now, brothers and sisters, listen for just a moment. I'm not trying to be legalistic. Salvation is the work of God and he saves people. He saved the thief on the cross who had no time to do good works. God saves people. It is God's Work of the Spirit that redeems the sinner. And people are saved on their deathbeds. People are saved in prison after years and years of sinful living. People are transformed. If you have breath in your lungs, there's opportunity to be saved. But listen to what John is saying. If you claim to be saved, there ought to be evidence in your life. You ought to be able to see it. You ought to be able to know it because you're not practicing sin. Let me give you a second thing here that he gives us. Not only is practicing sin lawlessness, but practicing sin is mocking the work of Christ. This one made me weep this week as I was studying it. I want you to see verse 5 and verse 8. Notice how he compares the work of Christ to what sin has done. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. In him there was no sin. That's Jesus. He appeared to take away sin. Now look at verse 8. Here he is bringing this idea back up again. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There, uh, excuse me. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Let, let me let me lay this very clear with you. Sin is such a serious issue to God that He sent His only Son to die. That means as believers, we cannot view sin with indifference. We cannot view sin with lukewarmness. We cannot view sin as if it's no big deal. It is a big deal. The blood of Jesus was shed for it. It is a big deal because God himself sent his son to die in order to wash it away. It is a big deal because in verse 5 and verse 8, it reminds me that the only hope I had of my sins being cleansed was the very blood of Jesus poured out. Don't tell me sin's not a big deal because it cost my Savior his life. It's a big deal. And for us to claim we are children of God and think of sin as being nothing or no big deal, or God will cover it, or grace covers all things, and we make a light of our sin is to make a mockery of the very work of Christ on the cross. It is a big deal. You've heard the saying, that's a hill to die on. Usually we use that saying when we form some opinion that we will not budge from. You're not going to convince me of that that's a heel to die on. In the world of parenting, we pick and choose these on a daily basis. Is that a hill to die on, right? Am I going to, am I going to dig in on this heel? We, we do this in our marriage relationship. Is that a heel to die on? Men, let me give you some help here. The only heel to die on is yes, ma'am, all right? Helpful, helpful, write it down. That's helpful. That's good stuff. The idea here is, is that it's a heel to die on. We're not going to budge on this. Listen now and let me give you some idea of this hill to die on. Sin was so serious to God that Jesus actually died on a hill. Sin was so serious to God that he gave up his sonship and identified as a sinner so that I can be made a son. Sin is so serious to God that it's a cosmic battle. Look at verse 8. He went to war against Satan in order to conquer it, to break it. Brothers and sisters, we should be living as those who will not practice sin because we see what it did to our Savior. We know what it cost heaven, the very blood of Jesus. And so a Christian will see sin and know that it is breaking God's way. It's lawlessness, but they they won't practice sin because they know it cost Jesus his very life. Let me give you a third one here, sin will not be practiced by a believer because it proves we don't know God. Notice verse 6 and 7 again. He says, Those that keep on sinning have never seen Him nor know Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He who is righteous. This is what he says. He says, If you claim to know God, then you'll know that sin is evil. And you'll know that sin causes you not to walk with God. It causes us to separate you from God. And so we won't practice sin because practicing sin just proves we don't know God. We'll run from it because we value our relationship with the Father. We won't find ourselves in sin because we love the Father. We won't compromise. We won't go that way. It is simply this. Sin is incompatible with being a child of God. You cannot worship and wallow in sin while worshiping Jesus. Those don't work together. You have to hate one and love the other. And he simply says, if you're practicing sin, it's proof you don't really know the Father. So he pushes us. The Christian may fall into sin, but the true child of God will not remain in it. They won't sit and soak in it. They will run from it. They will move away from it. The Christian is one who is overwhelmed by their grief of sin. David in Psalm 51, and they set their mind on the things of above, thinking not of this world, but meditating on the word day and night. They desire the things of God because they are part of God's family. Practicing sin means that we don't know God. This is not good for us. And then finally, If you find yourself living in sin, here is the sobering truth that he gives us. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes in the practicing of sin is of the devil. I'm not sure how to expound on that any clearer. I'm not sure how to take John's words and explain it any better. If you practice sin, if you live in sin, if you're walking in sin, if you're actively sinning, and rebelling against God with no conviction, no care, no repentance, no desire to war against it, then John would say, you are a son of the devil. You do not know him, he's not inside you, he's not working. Why? Because God has come to destroy sin, break the devil. So if you're walking in it, you you should know it, you should be convicted over it. You shouldn't practice it even says it, that Satan is the original author of sin. Think of Adam and Eve. When they first sinned in the garden and God came to find them, what did they do? They hid in shame. That's what verse 28 tells us in chapter 2, that if God appears and we're living in sin, we're going to be shameful. But if a true Christian is prepared for Jesus to return, is enjoying life as a child of the king, and is running from sin, then why fear it? Why be afraid of the Lord's return? Why worry about your salvation? Why worry in this? I had a gentleman just week. It's interesting how the Lord works. A gentleman, not of our church, but had recently lost a spouse and was driving around town looking for someone to talk to and pulled into the church. And I happened to be available. And so we sat together And this person who had been married for 40 something years. Their wife has now passed away. And the question was, will I see her again? And he began to tell me, he said, I I got saved three years ago. I've been going to this church, but I've just been really struggling with am I really saved? Am I really sure? Will I see her again? Those are the questions we ask, is it not? Is it true? Is it there? And so I was able to share with him that salvation is the work of God, that we know the work of Christ is death, burial, and resurrection, and that those who trust in Christ alone for salvation are saved and sealed and nothing can take us from the hand of God. You're not going to get into heaven because you hold to your salvation. You're going to get into heaven because the Savior holds you. But... As I was saved at nine years old, I don't put all my eggs in the basket of nine years old. I put my eggs in the basket of 30 years after that trying to walk with Jesus. Trying to move towards Jesus and away from sin. Are there bumps? Are there bruises? Is there failures? Plenty of them. But I can say, reading this passage, looking back over my life, not not in any kind of uh, bragging way, but in humility, God's seat is inside me and He's been doing a work. And there's evidence of obeying and following and hating sin and warring against it and loving being His child and waiting for His return. Brothers and sisters, let us return to the three questions as we close. And that's simply this. What are we? Are you sure you're a child of God? Are you confident based on what John has laid out for us that you are a child of God? You've been born again. If not, let today be the day let today be the day where you cry out for salvation and ask the Lord to save you and redeem you and transform you from the inside out, planting his seed of truth and salvation in your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what shall we be? Are you confident that you'll see Jesus and be proud of that moment? Are you living in such a way where you're ready for his return? Are you living in such a way that you're inching closer and closer to the transformation of being with Him. I I understand, as I said last week, when he returns, the gap between sinful Cory and perfected Cory is big. But every day I hope to close it a little. I hope to live in a progression that's moving towards him. And then finally and lastly, because I know he's returning and because I'm confident I'm a child of the king, what should we be? Are you purifying yourself every day in righteousness? And I just want to close by reading one verse to you. He says this in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. You know why I close with that verse? Because the standard for your behavior and the proof of your salvation is found not in the opinion of the pastor or your spouse or what the world might say. It's found in Jesus. It's found in His righteousness. The world will tell you you can live in sin and worship at the same time. The world will tell you that you can come to Jesus and compromise on things that are written in the Bible. That's not true. Let no one deceive you. To come to Jesus is to live in righteousness. Would you pray with me this morning, Father? We pray now as we've labored over this text together. We've certainly combed it forwards and backwards and there's much more we could see, Father. There's so much uh, truth that John gives us, but ultimately, Father, the truth is in front of us. Everyone in the room, everyone listening online has to answer the same question. Verse 28 puts it in front of us. Are we ready to see Jesus or will we cower in shame? Lord, I pray this morning for the one that's here that that they're not sure if they're born again. Lord, after studying the text this morning, I pray that you'd press on them. Is there evidence of their salvation? Do they have a pattern and a heart that, that hates sin and loves being a child of God and longs for your return? Lord, if they don't see that as a pattern of their life, I pray you'd break their heart and they would cry out for mercy and you would save their soul. Father, I pray for the believer that's in the room that they found themselves doubting their salvation Maybe they find themselves fighting the same sin over and over and over, and so Satan has reminded them that maybe they're not really saved. He's whispering in their ear, Lord, I pray You press on them and remind them that perfection is not what You call us to, but direction. Walking towards the Lord. Lord, I pray that even the evidence of the battle would prove to them that they hate sin and they don't want to do it. Lord God, I pray that You would just Press the truth into our hearts. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Brothers and sisters, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to offer to you an opportunity to respond. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to just come and and fall on your knees at this altar and and pray to the Lord. Maybe you want to confess sin. Maybe you want to come and and take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I, I want to be born again. I want to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I know I'm saved, but I've not been living right. I've not been walking right. And and I just want to have a refreshing, rekindling moment that I plant a flag and say, I'm, I'm following after the Lord. And I want you to know. I want the church to know. I want them to help me in this. Whatever the case may be, brothers and sisters, I pray this morning you will leave here ready to see Jesus. Father, bless us as we respond in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? You come if the Lord leads.